So welcome to another Enterprise Community Conversation. I'm really excited today to be joined by Mark Brown, Executive Director of the Student Freedom Initiative. Um, so Mark, I don't get the chance to talk to a retired Air Force Major General very often. And so my go-to question is, did that prepare you perfectly for working in higher ed? Hey, John, let me uh, first thank you for a chance to be, uh, to be with you all today. And uh, that's, a, that's a great question. What I would say is, uh, in all fairness, I had to stop in between my time uh, in the Air Force uh, and my current position as, as executive director. And that stop was as the chief operating officer of uh, federal student aid, which is uh, focused on higher ed, higher ed issues. This, and, and in my case, uh, the student loan portfolio and all Title IV funding. I will say that I spent 32 years in the Air Force. And one thing that is uh, portable is uh, leadership. And uh, that leadership uh, helped me at the Department of Education. Uh, it helped me here as well. And then the other thing that's portable uh, is a sense of public service. And I, I, I felt that uh, in the Air Force uh, as if uh, our mission is for something greater. I felt that at the Department of Education, and I feel that here uh, as, as the executive director of the Student Freedom Initiative. You know, you're also on the file under unusual is the fact that when you were working for SFA, you were involved in creating regulatory expectations for higher ed, and now you get to <laughs> live with them. How does that feel? How does that feel? <laughs> and you're right. We, we had uh, regulatory oversight uh, compliance, which is absolutely necessary. And let me say that that's an advantage, right? Because as we're creating this product, we're creating it uh, with all of those regulatory kinds of guidances and transparency that you would want in a product that deals with an individual's finances. We're baking it in so that our product uh, comes out, and we believe it does come out uh, totally in compliance with those requirements. So again, it, it ended up, uh, I won't say by design, but uh, it certainly ended up being uh, to, to our advantage to have had that experience. So our organizations have a lot in common, including our name doesn't necessarily say what we do. Uh, <laughs> cause doesn't exactly convey what we do. Student Freedom Initiative is very resonant, but what in the world do you do? I, uh, I want to shape exactly um, how I answer that by our, our founding. So I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, way back in, in 2019, and that's probably not that far back, our founder, Robert F. Smith, was the graduation speaker at Morehouse College. Uh, and when he was there, uh, he told the class of 2019, about 400 young men, that he was going to help them uh, get started quicker. Uh, he was going to pay their student loans. And uh, obviously, that was met with uh, lots of applause. And uh, after that applause came the real work, right? Go find out where these student loans are. Uh, go find out uh, what kinds of Arrangements have been made like uh, parent plus loans and consolidations, all kinds of things. At that time, I was sitting in my former job at the Department of Education. And I think one thing that uh, Mr. Smith, our chairman, found, uh, as did the people working this for him, is that it's a quite complex thing to do. Uh, and as they went through it, and he made good on his promise, he paid every bit of those student loans, and it was to the tune of $38 million that he paid for those 400 young men. He felt he was liberating them from the burden of debt so they could go out wherever their passions would take them and do the work that, that, that they wanted to do 
and not what they had to do to pay their student debt, right? He was looking for that, that mix of, of, of capabilities. That student loan portfolio that I had, it was $1.7 trillion. One third of that loan portfolio was defaulted, delinquent, or in some ways distressed, meaning the payment was not being made as agreed upon, uh, and in some cases, several years old. So not in that good of shape. Inside of that was uh, that number, that one third was an overrepresentation of people of color. Uh, and it essentially was, uh, in many cases, some of our students that had attended HBCUs. What Mr. Smith thought, I think, uh, and, and you would often, you can often hear him say this was, how do we do this to scale? If you didn't happen to be fortunate enough to be sitting in the Morehouse College class of 2019 or the parents of those students, what about the other 100 or one so historically black colleges and universities and really minority serving institutions where the economic framework is about the same? What do we do to fix this in perpetuity? Out of that was born the Student Freedom Initiative, a 501c organization dedicated to liberating students to the degree possible of overwhelming debt and building up the capacity of the historically black colleges and universities they attend, and also making sure that their college time ends in social mobility, meaning they don't just get a job, they get a good one uh, and can move along in society, which we think is the purpose of education. So that's, that's what we do. There's a lot to that, but essentially that's our purpose. And it gets really interesting when you start thinking, you know, one person doing an act of huge kindness is one thing. My guess is your challenge is thinking in scale. And so I know a little bit about that some of what Student Freedom Initiative does is linked with this idea of an income share approach. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? You know, of all the instruments in the student loan portfolio, the one that is most problematic uh, to us and to many who, who look at it, is the parent plus loan. And the parent plus loan is when you've gotten all of your financial aid award packages that you are uh, entitled to get, uh, and you still have a requirement left to pay for your valid cost of college. The parent plus loan allows a student to have the parent sign, and then they get that loan to cover the college. 65% of our historically Black college and university students participate to some degree in the Parent PLUS loans. Those loans in general across the country default at five times the rate of others, and the debt is held two times as long. So I think as we would say in the military, we found our center of gravity. We know what the issue is. It isn't a faulty instrument uh, that's creating more debt and trouble than it's creating prosperity. And so the income contingent alternative is what we call it, is, a, is an instrument designed initially for STEM students that are juniors and seniors in a manner that gives them more flexibility and does not require their parents' signature, especially those who are coming from fragile economic backgrounds. Here's how it works. So if you're a junior or senior majoring in STEM at any of the schools that we are working with, uh, you're making satisfactory academic progress. You've gone through your financial aid ward package and you still have a cost of college left, we offer up to $20,000 per academic year uh, in an income contingent agreement. The way that works is for every $10,000 you make above the poverty level after graduation, 
you would then pay it forward uh, by paying 2.5% of that in. But so you would, the, the, the obvious question is, where's the flexibility? Where here's the flexibility. Let's say you decide to go to graduate school. You don't pay during that period of time. It's not going to start like a promissory note where we're coming after you, and you no matter what you're doing. Well, you're not going to pay because it's income contingent. Let's say that you decide uh, to go to a Title I school. All you've ever wanted to do is teach chemistry at a Title I school. You want to be a teacher. They pay a whopping $28,000 a year below the poverty level of $30,000, but you still want to do that because that's where your passion is. You don't pay anything while you're in that, in that particular job. You don't pay anything until you are above the poverty level. Either way, after a 20-year period, it's over. Now, let's say that you do take that chemical engineering job or that electrical engineering job, and you make $70,000, $80,000 a year, and you've taken out ten dollars or $15,000 between your junior and senior year. Uh, you'll pay the 2.5% of your income, and you'll probably be done in, in six or seven years. That's our point. We're able to fund those by virtue of, of, of donations made through philanthropic folks. So that's how the capital for the program works. But here's, a, here's another part. You, you mentioned in perpetuity, or maybe I mentioned it, but somehow in perpetuity, what do we mean forever? We're a 501c3 organization. You're not paying us back. Uh, we don't we don't collect any money in that regard. You're paying into what we call an endowment without walls for all HBCU students in the future. Here's the point. Endowments are endowed scholarships and those kind of things are how schools close the gap many times on requirements and other for, for uh, their students as well as other school requirements. The smallest endowment at an Ivy League school that we could find is $2.9 billion, the smallest of the endowments. We looked at 70% of the available HBCU publicly published data of endowments. And some of our higher endowments, the ones that we're able to get, we still did not get a total of 2.9 billion. So there is a disparity in opportunity between some schools and our HBCUs. And there are a lot of reasons why. But, but this fund that they're going to pay forward after is going to pay back into uh, this endowment without walls. and so. Long after I'm doing something else, uh, some student at Tougaloo College down in Mississippi who has made great uh, progress in the areas of, uh, of engineering or, or one of the sciences will be able to close the gap. And most importantly, let's end participation in the Parent PLUS program. Let's stop uh, strapping those who are economically distressed already with a loan that is obviously unaffordable. That's the vision. Well, the last part sounded almost like a policy uh, change. And so I did a community conference. The last one I did was with Paul LeBlanc recently talking about his new book, Students First, in which he similarly has some ideas about how the student financial aid model could be changed in a way that makes to him more sense. Um, are you also working to, uh, as a, he was, he also used to work at the Department of Education. So maybe it's a Department of Education thing. <laughs> well, here's the, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You, you, you got a good point. So we work all elements of this. We, we, are, we do have uh, uh, a desire to influence policy with data. Uh, we are involved uh, in a longitudinal study uh, where all of this information we're getting, we're collecting in data. And yes, we think that, that, the, that a more systematic answer is due. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The Pell Grant is at a certain level. Um, but the cost of college has risen dramatically more than the Pell Grant. 
And so although the Pell Grant is being increased and we say doubled in some cases, that's the desire down the road, of the schools we've serviced thus far, students who have what's called an estimated family contribution of zero, which means when you look at the income of their parents, financially, it is not expected that their parents would be able to help them go to college. And so they go to college, many times first-generation students. They still, after their federal financial aid award package, have a eleven dollars to $13,000 or so gap in college. That's obviously the system isn't creating what it was intended to create. If now a person who is in a uh, fragile economic position must borrow money to complete this, there's no, there's no calling home. I, uh, I spent a, about a week in South Carolina about three weeks ago, beautiful state of South Carolina. There are around seven or eight uh, HBCUs within a 200 mile radius. Uh, we sat with students in focus groups and we met with the leaders of those institutions. This uh, wealth gap in America is real. Uh, and the ability of those students to um, matriculate through college has everything to do with the overall economic situation and the policies. Uh, the last thing I'll mention is, you know, way back when, when the first Higher Education Act was built, 1965 or so, uh, or, or one of the first ones. And we created Title IV. It was uh, just coming out of Vietnam. There was a lot of division in the country. And part of, part of what President Johnson, LBJ, wanted to do at the time was close the economic gap. And Title IV financial aid was supposed to do that. But the cost of college changed so much that the gap got wider and the social mobility was not created. So your point about the policy is exactly where we need to go for some of this is to the policy. So we're talking about gaps and, and wealth gaps and, and opportunity gaps. Um, there's another gap called the digital divide that at Educause we've been tracking for a very long time, um, which is also a challenge. Is, is SFI taking on the digital divide at all? We believe that we are, you know, um, you know, burning platforms. We talked about the financial burning platform. Another burning platform, if you will, would be that 82% of HBCUs are in broadband deserts. 82%. That means just about every HBCU is in a broadband desert. And, and so that's an that's a, a, a issue. It's not a new issue, but when we had the pandemic, the issue was brought to the front line. Why? Because as some schools pivoted to virtual learning, uh, to global campuses, those kinds of things, words that you've heard, other schools stopped still uh, because they lacked uh, the connectivity to where their students are. That's a problem at our HBCUs. Now, we're very fortunate uh, that we have partnered with a number of folks and Educause, frankly, is at the top of that list. Uh, because what we did was we tried to find the best in the industry and said, what, what can we do about this? We depended uh, on you all for professional expertise because you had the vision of this uh, for all schools uh, while we were working with a small group. Uh, you could kind of help us and coach us as you have in how to get through compliance requirements. And then we relied on industry for philanthropy. Just before I left uh, the Department of Education, we issued an edict that said all schools will, com will comply 
with the National Institutes of Science and Technology. It's a technical term. 800-171 is the, is the numbers that go with it. But essentially, it's about 300 questions and requirements to, to secure your IT systems, campus cybersecurity. We said all schools must do it uh, because the information that we send to a school through the federal, the free application for federal student aid, uh, as well as the Title IV funding comes through IT systems. It's not news to anyone that those systems have been hijacked and the data held ransom uh, in the open market, both in the education industry, but in other industries as well. Now, Title IV funding comprises about 90% of some of our HBCUs funding because most of their students are on Title IV funding. If you were to remove the Title IV funding from a school, you would essentially shut it down in many cases. They have to have access to it. Amazing philanthropy from Cisco, uh, a cloud provider, AVC Technologies, uh, and and the expertise of Educause has come together to make this offering. For every HBCU, unless that HBCU decides to opt out, we provide a gift where the cybersecurity requirements checklist will be completed. Once that checklist is completed, no matter where the school is, if they've started or if they haven't, a gap analysis will be done between the federal requirements and where the school is at. A build of materials will be done to fill the gap, software, hardware, whatever is required. The labor will be provided then to do the work. And then 12 months of maintenance past that date will be done for every HBCU. In other words, our, our HBCUs will have the opportunity to become cyber secure in this environment. But more importantly, and, and where I think we certainly benefit from Educause is we're looking for the long-term solutions, the best practices in the entire industry. We're getting that uh, from Educause. We're also getting uh, other kind of professional development for the CIOs at those campuses so that it's not just us completing a requirement, getting them to compliance, and then going away in the sunset, but they have a long-term view of how to do this and professional developments in their CIO shops. So we're with you on the digital divide. Um, very, very critical to what we are doing. Uh, and we think we've made some advancements on that. And the, the last thing I will say is that it's not just a theory. We're doing this, right? We, we have, we, we're at our schools completing it in Texas. Uh, we're moving up the border there, having completed several schools in Louisiana. Uh, I told you we were in South Carolina completing agreements to do the schools there. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we will be doing the same thing in Mississippi right after the holidays. So we're off and running. Well, I imagine that the great work you're doing uh, to help HBCUs become secure, you're also figuring out, back to that word scale again, um, you're figuring out ways to do that that will help all institutions with some boat lifting that's needed as well. So I guarantee you we'll continue to partner with you to share the good stories that you've figured out. And in fact, talking to a couple of your institutions as we speak to do some writing to help share with the rest of college and university sector what, what works, because what works works for everybody. And there's certainly a lot to be done. You know, it's my understanding that um, as I've talked to CIOs from HBCUs, that their approach to technology is different from maybe the average. And, and one difference I've been led to believe, I'm curious if you see it too, is more of a reliance on outsourced 
IT resources. Is that a true statement? And if so, how does that complicate the task of making these institutions secure in perpetuity, let's say? Right. Kind of the way I would describe this is, again, I want to go to our our partnership with Educause. Best practices uh, and resources and tools is one of the prime things we get from Educause. So how in a resource-constrained environment do you build a CIO shop that can still do all of the compliance requirements and all of the update requirements as would a separate counterpart? That, that checklist that I talked about, it's the same for UCLA as it is for Tougaloo College. It's the same checklist, but the resources obviously are considerably different. And so what has happened over the years as this issue of technology has taken on a different uh, level of criticality, we see a hodgepodge of approaches. One of them is we don't have a CIO. We don't have a technology shop per se. We have the duties of assigned under perhaps a a vice president or, or, or a dean perhaps. And we rely on contracted support to do that. Well, here's the issue. Uh, and as I said, I've spent some time uh, in the Air Force and I've spent some time in uh, Department of Ed and we do a lot of contracting. And whenever you contract something out, there needs to be two people in the room uh, of, of relatively equal knowledge uh, to, to ensure that what you are asking for, you will actually get uh, and that you have compliance over it to know what it looks like when you get it, if it's, if it's what you expect it to get. So while that has occurred, we still need to build up some of the organic abilities of the, uh, of the HBCU so that even if it is contracted out, there's a balance of expertise well enough for execution. Things like uh, that we've learned, and I, and I, wanna, and I certainly want to credit Educause for this. Those who have gone to shared services and built a model like that seem to have been able to achieve the economic efficiencies in that, the budgetary efficiencies in that, without having to take uh, less service. And so we're exploring those kinds of things. We're, we're looking for, during that 12-month period I told you about maintenance, we're looking for what will be the governance model for this particular school or groups of schools that will take them well into the future. And, and uh, it's, not, it's not the same. So what, what will work in Orangeburg, South Carolina, might not work the same in uh, the metropolis of Atlanta, Georgia, right? I mean, there's going to be there's going to be some differences, but part of what we're providing as a service is that advice, uh, again, based on best practices and capabilities. One of the things that I find so inspiring about your approach is, you know, as technology professionals, we're always very quick to tell a story that it's not just the technology, that that's part of it. It's technology, it's people, and it's processes. And I just heard that again and again from you that you're Yes, you're providing technology, but you also understand that it's the people and also that you need the processes in place to have this continue on and on. And, and, and I just think that it, it feels like that's a big part of your intentionality around this work. It is. Uh, and, you know, and we started talking about uh, the financial aspects. We talked about the um, technology aspects. But if we step back from both of those very important things, we're talking about a group of people almost 300,000 students who are incredibly talented that may fuel this economy in the future. And by that, I mean the national economy. 
the, the data tells us that our HBCUs kind of hit above their weight class, right? Despite all the things that I've said about, about their financial abilities and what they have, they represent about 3% of all colleges and universities. But as an example, they produce 40% of the engineers. So think about it. We, we can't stand to lose this capability. They 17%, I think, of all uh, Black bachelor's degrees come from HBCUs, but somehow 50% of all Black lawyers have an HBCU background. They fight above their class, 24% of STEM majors, but 80% of all Black judges. So, so there is a capability that the nation has that we believe we're going to help unleash and make even better uh, by things like the IT infrastructure upgrades, the bringing of 5G capability, the elimination of broadband deserts. This is a national treasure, and uh, we believe we're going to help unleash it for uh, the economy and for the nation as a whole.